Building a custom house in America can be an onerous and costly process, which is why most people buy a home someone else built and spend up to $20,000 in their first year just to renovate it. What if ordering a home online was as easy as ordering a Tesla? With their custom home building marketplace, Atmos is hacking the housing industry and upgrading home building. If you want to build a future of living, join their team as a full stack software engineer. Visit buildatmos.com or email hello at buildatmos.com. That's atmos.com for more information and links to apply. Welcome back to Hack the Industry. Today on the show, we have Ed Matasevic. Ed is an innovation expert with over 25 years of experience in the insurance and financial services industry. He's a self-described entrepreneur with a knack for researching, identifying, and executing on methodologies and technologies that bring more dollars and better customer experience for Fortune 50 companies. With corporate patents under his name, he brings to the show an exciting perspective on insurance and innovation that is rooted in a remarkable curiosity about the world. Welcome to the show, Ed. Tanmay, thanks, and thanks for uh, asking me to join in the conversation. I want to start maybe with a little bit of humility. Um, you gave me a really nice sound up there, but I will say that um, I, I can't claim to be an expert on all things insurance, but I will definitely share what I've learned along my journey. And we're looking forward to hearing that, Ed. So let's just dive right in. So first question I want to ask you, Ed, is what's the biggest misconception that consumers have about the insurance industry? So I think that is a, a fascinating question. And I'll start it this way again, kind of going back to that thing I just said, where um, I think one of the misconceptions that people have is they feel that insurance is largely the same everywhere. And I think even so my experience is all domestic insurance. Um, but if you think of insurance, it has you know its remnants all across the world. But even in the United States, I would say, one thing that people may not know is the degree of variability to which insurance itself has to adapt to be able to be transacted. So state by state, there are a set of conditions and regulations that vary slightly in order for you to do business. And I think sometimes when you're just going into it, you think of insurance as kind of this, this one thing and, and the companies are the experts and everyone else is trying to figure it out. But even for the companies themselves, they, they have a, a chance to have to figure out how it is to operate in each individual state because it is uh, very state to state in conditions. So I'd say that was one of the bigger misconceptions that people might have starting off. Okay. Yeah. And, and to that point, so you mentioned a key word that I thought was interesting is adaptability. Uh, I think it's, it's definitely interesting how the insurance industry has over time learned to 
be more receptive of consumer interest and be more receptive of kind of what's going on in the world. Uh, typically, we we think of insurance people that um, sell product um, to be kind of, you know, your traditional um, suit and tie people that go to work and, and sit down all day and make phone calls and try to sell you their product. Um, but over time, you see, I mean, insurance companies have some of the best commercials and some of the best branding um, that we can think of, right, with, uh, with uh, things like Jake from State Farm, things like the, the Geico commercials, um, uh, Allstate, et cetera. So it's definitely um, interesting how insurance companies have adapted um, to, to the, the changes in consumer interest. And so with that, um, obviously with the, the, the pandemic going on, um, a lot of consumer interest and awareness and concern has gone to their actual product portfolios. Um, so how do you think that this pandemic will shape uh, more customer-centered innovation for insurance companies when it comes to uh, giving more flexible uh, product portfolios um, should something like this ever happen again, or, or in, in, a, in a more broader sense to establish a new normal for this industry? So I think that is that is really a question that a lot of companies are trying to navigate now, not just in the insurance sector. But let me see if I could start this way, Tammy, and then you can help maybe guide me towards see if I'm answering your question correctly. So one thing related, I think, to our current realities, um, and not just to COVID-19, but to some of the, the things that are happening at an you know, increasing pace, technology, climate change, so they are having an impact at a, an accelerating rate over some of the things that, that insurers kind of use to help judge risk, to um, help size up the way to, to match price to risk for people and decide on those factors that you're talking about. And you know, where does a portfolio mix you know, fall and how can I give people more flexibility? So to start with, Let's just talk about um, COVID-19, which is a novel virus that we're all learning about now. And we're, no one really knows the, the overall impact on things like morbidity, which is a really formal word that just you know, means the chance that you have an illness in a way that, that's sort of your, your vitality. And then the other side of that is mortality, which looks at your lifespan. And there's tables that are designed by actuaries and they're based off of years and years of knowledge. And what we don't know is how will those things um, impact some of those? Will they have, you know, is this a large enough um, crisis that it's gonna have an impact on those things um, that might change some of the data for us? And then another thing is, um, are some of the stuff, like I mentioned, like climate change changing um, some of the models that we look at, you know, you hear these terms on the news like 50 year storm or a hundred year storm. And are we dealing with conditions that make the gap between those events smaller? And if so, how do, how do we as an industry actually become more responsive so that we can better reserve um, customers? I'll stop there because I didn't fully get into the customer centric part, but I want to give you a chance to react to that. And then we can get into the second part of the answer, if you would. Absolutely. So one point that I, I just thought of, as you were mentioning, things like climate change and new technology. So for for someone who may be listening and wondering, um, new technology, let's, let's say, for example, self-driving cars. Um, let's say those become heavily commercialized in the next few years. Um, and insurance companies now have to judge this as a new risk or a new factor in their product portfolios. For, for someone who's listening, they might think that if we have self-driving cars, 
there would be essentially, ideally, no accidents on the roads, and henceforth there would be no need to have, um, you know, insurance premiums. So that might be a misconception with with that particular example I gave. How would you maybe address that that um, that thought process that someone might have? Sure, I um, I'll give I'll give a shot. So. Um, if I really want to boil it down to sort of uh, the essential elements, right now, if I think about the way insurers assess risk when when a person is driving, you know, they they have really two broad buckets, right? They you have personal uh, auto insurance, and then there's commercial um, auto insurance, and and one of the stressors that you see happening right now is this idea of when we look at what's happening with the gig economy. Um, you see, you know, people with the, the rise of uh, transportation network carriers like TNC, Lyft, and Uber. Um, people are starting to use their cars in a way as individuals that you know is partly the way that we've always done it, but then also partly creeping into this other entity. And so, the way we set rates is you set rates by by experience and by the behavior characteristics of. Um, what, what's happening. And so even if we move into the world of autonomous vehicles, it might not be that we're rating um, the risk of the, the car taking the trip so much on the behavior of the human being, but there's still software that's controlling the behavior of how it reacts to environmental conditions. And that that is, um, there's still going to be accidents that happens. It's a cliche, but we call them accidents because they come from the realm of unpredictable, unforeseen circumstances. So one condition that I think people might think about it is that even if the computer and the machine learning algorithms are making the decisions on how to drive, they're going to be encountered with something that they, they couldn't have anticipated, and it is when that thing happens that overwhelms the system and there is an accident, um, what type of coverage is responsible and who is responsible for that? Um, that is a question that, that right now the industry and the, um, the equipment manufacturers for those self-driving algorithms are, are in discussions about. Is, does insurance become more product liability at that point of view, much like you have when you buy other you know, products that are supposed to perform a certain way? So I think that would be one area that is really interesting and an active area of research, which is I, I, the hope is, and I think the reality is that as we move towards autonomous driver, there will be a, a big reduction in the amount of um, traffic accidents uh, because you, you can remove some of the things that humans are more prone to, which would be uh, distraction, which would be, um, you know, like, whether or not you're tired, whether or not you, you have some other things that are impairing your ability to make the optimal decisions. And you get around some of that with sensors and, and other technology that you're doing. They don't suffer some of the human things, but also they, they have to rely on other factors. Does that help at all? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's it seems like there's always a risk, right? That's the key takeaway. There is that there's always going to be a new risk model to assess. Um, so, with that, um, I want to transition to the, the second part of of the question I asked earlier, um, and maybe phrase it in a different way. So, with uh, my example of if insurance uh, being sold as an intangible product, something that you just get on the phone and you hear you hear agents um, sell to all day, sell to customers all day. 
how do you innovate in an industry that that relies on these intangible goods and services um, and how do you make make that sort of uh, delivery model more customer oriented yeah i think great question and i think that is one space where i personally feel um insurance um has a has a a really nice rich uh opportunity space so i think about these things as transitions in economic models and if i go back to originally you know the most basic one is we we traded commodities and then we moved up to that to some sort of sophisticated products those transitioned into services which is the area that that insurance plays in and then now we're we're hearing a lot around experience economy and we're moving into something called the the transformation economy by some pundits and that's where you want more than just an experience you want a connection to something meaningful and authentic and i think that's one area where you know at the base of insurance a lot of insurance depending on um the model that you operate under and you know my employer operates on the model that uses an agent's force as a like kind of facilitator and a guide through the process but there are other um carriers that are more direct related but it hits on this idea that you have a good space to start connecting some of that to something that can be authentic and meaningful to the individual and leveraging some of the advancements of technology to make it feel much more um customized for the individual rather than just this sort of um everyone has the same experience type of thing where you have big bands of um risk categories like um gender based or age based or um geographically based those type of things i think what you'll see insurance doing to make it more customer centric is to leaning into the idea of how can they leverage um all the data they have to really customize um insurance around what the the individual behavior is doing uh and and if i can just add to that one one of the areas that i see in terms of growing customer expectation is this um desire for more hyper flexibility around how the coverage is allocated rather than you know insuring specific things and then wrapping my demographic you know information around them to do it you know why can't you get a picture of my holistic risk and how i interact with the world and then allow me to dynamically allocate you know something say i'm not you know i'm going on vacation and won't be around my car for a while why should i have to pay for uh, my car just to be dormant because if it's garaged or sitting somewhere it definitely has a lot less risk than when i'm driving it so what i see is a push towards maybe more personalization and um like the ability for an individual to to determine you know maybe the coverage periods not in annual or in semi-annual uh, policy terms but on a much more like usage based point of view does that help yeah that helps so um with increasing consumer expectations and customer expectations does that mean that the more we innovate the higher those expectations keep going i think that's an interesting question and i always always go back to um the first thing that hits me when you ask me that ten may is um is that is that a is that a bad thing so is that that ratcheting up cycle um 
a ch it's a challenge for businesses, I believe. But if if we truly want to be customer centric, uh, I'll liken it back to uh, a term that had been thrown around during the second digital revolution around this consumerization of IT. It's the concept that for one of the first times in a long time that people were exposed to more sophisticated technology in their personal lives than, than in their places of business or at work. And I see that happening now um, related to other things. And it becomes not so much of, is it an arms race up to meeting ever, ever widening customer expectations, but it is how do we address that thing? And I think if I take a, a tangent side with it, one of the things that I've seen, even though we as consumers have all this access to you know, delivery you know, within the same day or you know, um, maybe even a couple hours if you live in a big uh, metropolitan area, but you also see this, this switch, uh, what I call the, the craft nature of consuming. So this, you look at craft beverages or farm the fork restaurants, you see people wanting to go back to some very authentic and genuine, like almost craftsman type experiences. And I think if you focus on that traditional relationship part and you leverage some of the tools there, that's a real inroad with, um, it doesn't always just become a race up to the top to how do I you know, match this one-upmanship in expectation. It really kind of feeds back to letting people take a breath and valuing like what is really core and essential to them and meeting them where they're at and providing services and products that help them optimize what their true core values are. Does that help? Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And I think it speaks to uh, this new wave of innovation we might be seeing where, you know, personally, I'm, I'm sort of frustrated with, especially in the tech industry, um, seeing a lot of competitive companies sort of just piggyback off each other's innovations and on and you know change up one or two things in the in the uh, feature set that's being offered as part of that, that product or that software um, and instead of instead of focusing the dollars and the, the time on 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 a new sort of craftsman like or new customer experiences they're spending more time on on uh, increased technology and hoping that the the, the technology itself drives the appeal um, it's worked until now and, and I'm sure it'll keep working, but I think this new wave of innovation, this new, um, as you, as you, as you said, that word craftsman-like experience, that new um, experience model should hopefully uh, change up the way that we um, innovate across companies, small and large um, across the country. So yeah, I definitely think that there's some, some cool opportunities coming um, on that front. So I want to pivot to some of a, a, a bit of a different point now. Um, so much of our audience on this show is young people. Um, you know, there are people that are just about finishing school um, early in their career and looking for ways to add value both in their personal and professional lives. Um, so with your experience, um, with all these years of innovating, I want to probe your mind a bit about, um, about one of these, these points that I've been thinking about. So Simon Sinek, um, who's a very famous motivational speaker, did a talk recently where he said that young people want to add more and more value to their organizations and to those around them. But the problem is that these young people have grown up in this age of instant gratification. And so they get frustrated when their work or their efforts 
that would immediately result in that desired value add. So there's a, there's a lot of lot of things to unpack there. Um, the first thing I want to ask you, Ed, is how do you personally in your life, both personally and professionally, define value add? What does that mean to you? Ooh, um, that is a big question, Tammy. I think I would go back to um, leveraging something that I heard from a speaker at a conference several years ago that really stuck with me, if I could. So value, value add um, to me is something that is shown and it gets in like kind of fumbling around the answer. But if I go back to the way I define innovation, uh, innovation to me is an emergent process. And what I mean by that is a lot of traditional business and a lot of times, you know, we approach life as sort of this stimulus re response type of thing. I do something and then I, I get a response back from it. And when something's emergent, you can't necessarily predict exactly what the response you're gonna get. What you really can do is you can focus on creating the conditions to make outcomes more likely, but you can't dictate a specific outcome. So when I think about value add, I think about in what ways can I optimize creating the conditions to make the outcomes I would like to see happen more likely to happen. And I don't, I can't dictate what those specific outcomes can be, but what I can do is really focus my time and attention on tweaking the conditions in the current um, environment, whether that be culturally at work or approaches to the way we, we look at um, defining customer input. And I can create conditions then that make it easier for someone to engage and help um, the organization learn and understand what, what their what their real needs are and really where they would like to see some change and transition in that experience. That's my first blush answer to, to that in terms of value add. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the self-driving car model, right? You change the action, yeah. you get a different result. And sometimes that's a positive one, sometimes it's a negative one, but that's how you learn. So I definitely agree that um, that's that's a, an interesting way to if think I, about things. Um, so what's, oh, what's no, your, I was just going to add too, you mentioned Simon Sinek, who um, I, have, I have consumed you know, several of his TED Talks. And I think one of the things that I see as a constant uh, thread through his is that he hits on the one, if you think of the one where he did the, the golden, um, there was a golden circle. And he talks a lot about how, um, you know, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And then he uses, you know, the, the example of the, the really successful companies that can like completely transform, you know, what their offerings are. And it seems like their customer base just take whatever they're offering is those people who make a connection on the why. And then I think with the young audience, and this goes back to the, the person I was you know, mentioning before, there's a researcher park and he looks at um, change and how people embrace change. And he talks about the tragic gap. And the tragic gap is the space between what currently exists and the potential of the near future. And those people that really add value and impact lasting change are those who have the endurance to stand in that tragic gap because they aren't the people who just have this idealized view of the world that think, oh, wouldn't it be cool if 
you know, X, Y, Z happened, um, but they have actually seen a different way and have experienced it firsthand. And that's what I get really excited about young people. Um, Tammy, I have grandchildren and they have grown up in a world where things aren't unknowable to them. If they have a question, they can go on YouTube or Google um, and use voice actually as their input and pretty much get some sort of a semblance of an answer. Um, they have lived completely in a digital world. And so what I look to them is they have seen what it's like to live in this, this um, future that's unfettered by old learnings that I had being one of those middle agers that you had mentioned at the top of the broadcast, that I have to unlearn things to see things that my uh, grandchildren and young people just take as secondhand nature. So I think that is one of the things as an innovator that inspires me is to how do we get more sensitive to seeing the world um, through the eyes of someone who's had the luxury of living in the future um, as it is now and not having to unlearn a lot of the old traditional stuff. That's fantastic. I, I love that thought process. So you mentioned a lot of interesting people and, and topics and articles there. So I'm curious, what are some of your favorite books or what are some of your favorite sources of consuming all this information that you can share? Sure, I'd be listeners? happy to do that. And I will warn you too. I, I cast a very broad net. I will leave you with one thing I read, but I also, I found that I can listen a lot faster than um, I read. And so I've tended to uh, move a lot more towards uh, like podcasts and other audio things. But here's just a sampling of what sort of is on my active list right now. Um, there's a couple books related to uh, matchmaking markets and marketplace as an economic model. It's as much as uh, the web and social media platforms were like turbochargers of the second revolution. I have a feeling that marketplaces and the marketplace you know, dynamics are one of the cornerstones of the oncoming third digital revolution. And books on that nature, one is called uh, Matchmakers and another is called Machine Platform Crowd. There is um, a couple other books I'll highlight for you. Uh, Metaskills is a book by uh, Marty Neumeyer and he takes a look at like five skills that people are going to, to need to, um, to be equipped to follow and adapt to all the changes that are happening right now in an accelerating space. Uh, I've been reading um, a book called Unscrewed, which seems an outlier here, but it, um, one of the things I try to do is understand the world from perspectives that are different from my own. And this is a, a book written from a feminist point of view related to the struggles that women have in operating in a largely patriarchal system and how we can, uh, how they can, and we as allies can help them navigate the system and maybe uh, restructure it so that it isn't lopsided to um, a particular gender or a particular presentation of the way you exist in the world. And then on the podcast front, um, Flash Forward is a podcast um, a, a creator, Rose Eveleth, and she does a little story vignette about a possible future and then takes a look and peels back to what are some of the signals that are happening around us today that might inform that future. Ologies is a, a podcast uh, by Allie Ward, and that is the epitome of curiosity 
it's what happens when you just take a look at very interesting um, individuals with a depth of expertise and you ask them questions from a complete innocent um, novice point of view without a fear of, of, of sounding or failing or, or feeling incompetent and just exploring where they take you. And then one final one that I'll give you is a book um, that I just finished reading called Why Greatness Can't Be Planned, written by uh, author Kenneth O. Stanley, who specializes in genetic algorithms. And he talks about um, novelty search and the, how having a clear objective sometimes is the biggest limiter to having a fundamental breakthrough in any one particular arena. A lot that I just threw at you, Tanmi, there. So I'll give you a chance to maybe digest some of that and follow up. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a treasure trove of information. And for our listeners, I'll definitely leave some of those titles in our show notes so that they can go and check them out. But um, I definitely appreciate, you know, it's as you mentioned before, you you walk through that list. It's it's such a diverse list of of uh, topics and of books and of podcasts. And I think that's um, that's really in this day and age what uh, it, what propels us forward, right? I mean, as we all know, knowledge is power. And as cliche as that sounds, it's true. So definitely appreciate um, you know you sharing your your uh, your reading list with us. So on that note, um, in you know just in our final sign off, um, I want to give you a chance just to. Um, give some final thoughts to our listeners. Um, anything you want to leave them with before we sign off? Just um, ask anyone to uh, to just stay the course. And I mentioned the idea of tragic gap that I believe the the cohort of your listeners, as you described it to me, Tanmay, have a, a really unique possibility and potential. They are a large enough cohort that I believe they can help be sort of our Sherpas into what a future can be, as long as um, they can show up anyway. And what I mean by that, that's another book that I read by an author, which is that there's a lot of things that you had mentioned in your, your talk around how a lot of young people have grown up in an instant gratification where everything is related to you know, a like or a common economy and, and how much can I know exactly how something is, that I put out the world is doing in this present moment. And traditional institutions and, and definitely large organizations don't, don't have that sort of nimbleness. So I would just urge you, your listeners to sort of stay the course and help to reshape those things from the inside out because we really need the young people to stay engaged and help us transform you know, what our institution and organizations can be so that can um, set the stage and, and continue to provide good and valuable service to um, customers and consumers along the way. Yeah, well, Ed, thank you so, so much for such an interesting conversation. I hope our listeners definitely took something away. Um, if you did, definitely uh, follow us on our platforms, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Um, and make sure to tune in for our next episode. But thanks for listening to this one. And we'll see you next time.